Welcome back to ASD, A New Perspective, the podcast show where we help you understand what is going on in the mind of your child. And we encourage you that growth for your child is possible. In this week's podcast, Dr. Gutstein discusses a very challenging topic for those of us who are parents, autism and suicide. Let's listen in to what he has to say. I want to switch a little bit from the idea of of completed suicides, which are very dramatic and very powerful and need to be addressed. But there's a step before that, which is the concept of suicidality, the concept of of, um, or the the feeling like feeling that you don't want to live, that that life's not worth living, um, that, you know, walking through life, sense of hopelessness, helplessness, depression, and things aren't going to get better. Uh, having sort of a story that doesn't seem to change about your life. And while, again, I don't want to ignore completed suicides. They are statistically rare. They're powerful. They're extremely important. But they're still, even though there are more of them per capita with people with autism, it's still a pretty rare event. But let's let's sort of compare that to, to data about suicidality and and if you look at some of the recent studies it's really concerning uh, for instance Cassidy and colleagues Cassidy's done a lot of work on on suicide and autism found just recently this is a, a study published in 2020 that 72 percent of what we call high functioning adults with autism um, score above the clinical cutoff score for uh, suicidality, suicide risk, significant suicide risk, 72%, okay? Three quarters, right, basically, of high-functioning adults in their sample, uh, large sample, um, self-rated, rated themselves, as being significantly suicidal. And again, this is not longitudinal, it's cross-sectional, but still, it's a very powerful statement. Um, Similarly, when, when we looked at children and adolescents, um, a study by a psychologist named License in 2019 found that about one quarter of parents reported that the children or teenagers engaged in some kind of significant self-harm. Um, and of course, we talk about numerous, several studies that show that over 80% of high-functioning adults with autism report some kind of lifetime psychiatric conditions compared to about 20% of controls or comparisons. Um, About 20%, this was a study by Dow and colleagues, found that 20% report a history of suicide attempts. Okay. But I want to go back to this actually idea of suicidality rather than the completion. Everybody gets focused on the completion, and that is significant. As someone who was a suicidologist back in the 1980s, I, it was very important to me to prevent that completion so that we could be able to help people, obviously. But let's take a step back now and just look at this idea of suicidality and what it means. Why is it that we're talking about three-quarters of a group of people, and this is different than any other clinical population, that significantly considers killing themselves. 
right? These are what we think of as the most successful people in our spectrum, right? What's going on there? Um, and again, we take a step back from that. It's like, why are so many people depressed? Yes, anxious and depressed, but depression being huge. But why is the suicidality even stronger than the number of people who are depressed, right? Who report depression or clinical depression? It's a very powerful piece of information. It tells us maybe that we have to have some kind of a change in paradigm. Um, I mean, just look at that one one piece of data. Forget about anything else. Forget about employment. I mean, you could argue, okay, well, maybe everybody doesn't need to be happy to have a job. It doesn't need a job to be happy. I wouldn't agree. Or be able to live independently to be happy. You can live with other people. Or it doesn't have to have relationships. I mean, you could make all kinds of arguments. How do you make an argument that somebody <laughs> that somebody can be have a good life or well-being and be wanting to kill themselves? <laughs> I don't. I don't think you can make that argument, <laughs> right? So there's something very fundamentally wrong, right? When three quarters of a population, and this Cassidy, their group is the most reputable group in studying. They're like the gold standard for studying suicidality and autism. So it's not like some weird thing. And they've, you know, been studying the phenomena since 2014 of suicidality, which is longer than anyone else really, and and very carefully over the years. So we have to think about that. What? Why is this happening? And you know, when we think about what people, um, all right, so, so people are alarmed by this idea of suicidality and autism, to the extent there's been about 30 papers written over the last five years about it, where it wasn't talked about at all until 2014. And now it became a big, big topic. But it's been dealt with in a very superficial way. I mean, yes, it's important. This work is important, looking at just the what's going on. But in terms of what to do about it, um, they haven't really touched the surface. One thing they realize is that um, researchers are, are agreeing on is that there's something about having this diagnosis that um, makes you much more at risk for suicidality than just depression itself, even though depression is a risk factor. Um, and, you know, there are other things that are looked at, lexithymia being a risk factor on top of other things. Um, the... Um, yeah, and there there are several other things as well. But there's something about being in this autism culture, all right, being diagnosed, um, with it being served and getting intervention or not, whatever, that seems to be, right, <laughs> um, associated then eventually with not wanting to live anymore, right? Um, and... It doesn't seem to be that any uh, early interventions make much of a difference, although that has been carefully studied, but there's no reason to think it does, or any group that does. So what's going on? Well, one of the things that's been discussed is this issue of camouflaging. Um, I don't know if you know that term. It's a very unclear term. Um, it's used in a number of different ways. And let me explain um, what I believe, how camouflaging plays a role here. Um, you know, we all camouflage. We all, if you think about camouflaging, is we, we have a social self that we employ, right, when we're with certain, in certain interactions, certain transactions, when you're at the bank, when you're waiting in the elevator, going to a job interview, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes just at work, period, your work self. 
various levels of social self, which is we, we, are, we ourselves identify that at the same time we're doing that, we make a distinction between our social self, right, that what we're projecting, and who we really are, our authentic core self, right? And we don't find it exceptionally pleasant to be out there with our social self, at least most of us don't, right? But we do it, and we learn to do it, and we learn you have to do it, right? But while we're doing it, we don't mix that up with, with who we are. So in, in that respect, everybody camouflages, right? Um, and some people think about camouflaging if you have autism as not stimming or not doing certain things when you're with certain people. But we all, again, we all have to do that to some degree, right? In certain situations. But for people with autism, I want to take you back to Donna Williams, who is now deceased, and but for many years, we really uh, uh, tried to help people understand this dilemma a little bit more, camouflaging. What she talked about was when I'm with others, there is no self. She, she took camouflaging to that level, which is that um, what happens when I'm in a, in a social domain is there's only what I'm tr what, what's happening with you and the me is gone. And then after I'm with you, the me stays gone. I don't know how to find me again. I lose me. There is no me. It disappears. Right? Which is really scary. And most, very few of us have had that experience, right? Um, of, we know that when we're doing that social dance with, pe with people who we're not very intimate with, we know that that's a, a little thing we do. As I say, we, we put on a social self and that we can go back to being ourselves, right? Um, after that transaction or when that's not happening or with other people. And we, we desire relationships where we don't have to do that with people. Not that we're going to be mean or rude, but we don't have to put on that camouflage. They can affirm who we really are as people. But what happens if you don't know? What if it happens if your social life, your entire social world, becomes one of camouflage, becomes one of a social self? And there is no sense of you being you, your real you, your core you with another person. Okay, imagine having a life where that's true. Imagine going through days, going through your life, where no matter what the relationship is, it's one where you are not you. <laughs> you are what you think that person wants. You are some type of camouflage. You are some type so Imagine the emptiness there. Imagine the stress and the strain of that. It's very different. Yeah, it can be stressful to, you know, know you got to be a certain way with the boss or certain colleagues or in the elevator or whatever. But there's nothing like the stress of knowing that your entire life, right, any kind of encounter, any kind of interaction, that it's all going to be that. And, and not only the stress of it, but the emptiness of it, the lack of payoff of it, right? The idea that what's the point <laughs> of living in a world where it's all about camouflage, where there is nothing else, there's nothing deeper, there's nothing, right? There are no relationships because there is no me. And, and how do I develop a sense of me? And me is continuing, but also evolving and growing and changing and adapting, right? Well, you don't. So, so one, one critical aspect here I want you to consider is this concept of camouflage in a, maybe a different way than some of you have thought about it. And it clearly is a factor in suicidality and autism. And it's also, when you think about it, 
It also runs into a lot of what we do to try to provide support to people with autism. Now, I want to move it a little bit off that topic a little bit because I think there, there are certainly two trends in how we try to deal with providing what we might call support to teenagers, adults, people who are now moving out of that comp system of compensations, if we've set that up for them, into the what we call the real world, right? And one is we might try to provide counseling, job coaching, groups, whatever, right? Support, I might call it that. The other is what we might think of as neurodiverse, some aspects of a neurodiversity movement, where we encourage people to assume a primary identity of having autism. And then we expect or require or try to lobby the world to adapt to whatever that means to us, to those common characteristics, which I don't know if they exist, of people with autism, right? Now, here's the danger here. Okay, so let's assume now that um, we go that route. That's the other route of, of and, and I'm just using that term neurodiversity for, for the sake of it. Don't, don't want to get hung up on it. So now, instead of having this sort of social identity, I have an identity of, of being autistic. You can see that that really leads you into the same trap. There's several things about that that are problematic. One is it has nothing to do with who I am as a person. It's a piece. Just like I have ADD, it's a piece of me, but it's not me. And it's certainly not the part of me that I want to be the central part of me. Right? I don't want the central part of me that I'm part of this club of people with ADD in the world and, you know, that's who we are. I don't necessarily have anything to do with those people, <laughs> some of those people. And, and right. Um, and it doesn't it, it sort of distracts me from the idea of understanding me. Yeah, it tells me a little bit about in terms of how the ADD manifests biopsychosocially for me, some of my needs, some of my vulnerabilities. Right. Maybe you could argue some of my resources, but maybe not. Um, but other than that. Right. If that becomes my primary way I identify myself, I, then it cuts off any opportunities for self-growth and self-development, self-understanding. That's one issue. The second issue, which is a danger, is the idea that I would then expect the world to adapt to me. You know, and, and there is a, an element of the neurodiversity movement is we will lobby the world to compensate for us, to, to become an environment or, or niches where we can thrive. There's several problems with that. And one problem that's a huge problem with that, is that the world isn't going to do it most of the time. Yeah, we read about exceptions, and they're really exciting and very nice. And, you know, we see certain situ employers or certain places that do that. 99.9% .9 of the time, the world isn't going to adapt to you. Right? And you're going to be disappointed. But there's a second part of that, which is that if that's your primary uh, expectation, or belief in how you can be successful in the world, then you have no sense of personal, you don't develop any sense of personal agency or self-efficacy, the sense that you can develop the resources to be competent in a multitude of different environments, that you have to have some kind of outside force to create an environment for you. And that's really different than you have the capacity to understand yourself enough to find a good niche for yourself, right? Now, I've been talking with Rochelle and other people about some of our successful young adults, and we have a number of them. And what's interesting to me is none of them 
uh, is very involved in, uh, in that movement. Not one. They all know that they have ASD. There's no denial. But not one of them is involved with any kind of online meetings or they don't identify. At prim- they know they have autism. It's part of them. But they don't identify as that as primary who they are. They have, and they're very different from one another. Um, you know, in terms of everything, in terms of the things they enjoy, the things that they do for a living, from from musicians to creative artists to bank managers to um, uh, security uh, to to aerospace consultants <laughs> to I mean, you name it. <laughs> we have a variety of of young adults who are doing just a number of diverse things. And they can be very different. Some are outgoing, risk more risk taking, more un- managing uncertainty. Some are a little bit less in that respect. Um, one guy said to Rochelle, a kid, he was saying, Rochelle, I need to be a, be- I want to be a beta tester for software in a girl because I love to figure out what's wrong with the programs. <laughs> I love to do that, you know. Uh, he sort of knows himself, right, like that. And he could say, oh, that's a, a known of autism, but it's not, you see. Of those other adults we talk about. None of them actually want to be baited. They don't want to do that. That's not their inclination. You start stereotyping people with autism, you see what it does to them, right? It, it limits them in a very dramatic way, and um, it gives them the impression that they're trapped, that somehow autism is something that entraps them. It, it, it's something that is there that keeps them from doing something, right? It's not them. And, and, and again... What, we, what do we know about autism biopsychosocially? It's very heterogeneous, right? The thing that's in common is that people with autism very early on lose the opportunity for a type of growth, a critical part of mental growth, right? That mental and neural growth for a variety of different reasons, vulnerabilities. And therefore, what we want to do is provide them opportunities for growth. But that is it. That, that's, how, that's what they have in common. Right in terms of the specific vulnerabilities, the resources, the strengths, the interests, it's, it's just like anybody else, any other group of people, right? But anyway, that's you know what we see is that's sort of offering generic types of support is one solution that's being offered, right? Everyone with autism should have a job coach or this or that, uh, you know. And then the other is the the what what I call the neurodiversity movement, which is then. You know, you a lobby for the world to become more comfortable for you or more suited to you. I wish, and that's great. I mean, I guess I'm more interested in understanding that they're looking for niches that fit our unique needs and desires. But, you know, I'd like the world to be more comfortable for me too. We all do. But we can't, but when, when we assume that that's the primary route for our having a quality of life, for our well-being, then we're in a real trap, right? Right? We're in a real, we have a real problem, right? Because we expect the world to adapt to us. We don't expect that we're going to adapt in many ways to the world. And again, there's different ways to adapt. Sometimes we can expect the world to adapt to us, our needs, right? But often we can't be sure of that. Sometimes adapting means figuring out the right niche between the environment and your own, knowing yourself well enough to find the right fit or the best fit possible, right? Between your resources, your personal resources, your personal vulnerabilities, 
and what the environment has to offer you. But often it becomes a matter of you, right, being able to right, grow, to develop in a certain way or grow in a certain way so that you can thrive in changed environments. Now, there's another sense that often, very frequently people think about adapting, which is like in a more of a survival sense, you know? I have to change my behavior to fit in, a fitting in piece. Gets back to camouflaging, right? Fitting in. Um, the problem with that, that concept of adaptation is that it really is extremely limiting. Right? It means, you know, I have to alter behaviors to, to do things. It has no concept, there's no concept of growth in there. To me, humans, when we talk about human, when we talk about human adaptation, we talk about, I believe it has to be connected with growth. Yes, you can talk about survival, you can talk about adapting, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, so you can get by. But ultimately, um, that leads us to the same dead end. That leads us to the place where life doesn't become worth living. To me, the, the unique element of human adaptation is our ability for personal evolution. The ability that our minds continue, that we have this extended period through a mind-guiding relationship. And eventually, through finding other guides, peers, our own self-guiding for lifelong mental self and relational growth. Yes? And that's, we're built to grow. We stop growing, we might as well stop living. We lose the capacity for growth. We lose the capacity, right, to extend what we do into new places, to expand um, our, our mental tools, our capacities in new ways, to transform in certain ways without losing our core sense of self. When we lose that, then life becomes pretty dull, two-dimensional, hopeless. But within that, we have to maintain a sense of self-agency, a sense of self-efficacy, a sense that we can manage situations, we can cope with situations. We have to develop the experiences. We have to be able to use those experiences, be able to, to retrieve them, right, and have them so that we can perceive ourselves as not being afraid of new challenges, right? That adapting becomes something that whether we want to or not, right, whether we have to or we choose to, become experiences that have the potential for growth. Right? What's interesting is when we go back to the autism literature, take, if you ever do that, take a look, uh, do a search, take a look for the idea of growth and autism. Yeah, the people with autism, right, not, not coping, not compensating, not support, not learning skills, but growth personal growth, lifelong growth, you're not going to find much of anything about growth. growth. Growth depends on not survival, not fitting in. It depends on having opportunities, and we all know this, that are just a little bit ahead developmentally of where you are now in terms of your competence, in terms of your capabilities, and having an environment where you can take that risk, where you can take that leap without catastrophic consequences. It requires a growth environment. Growth requires, sounds like a, a tautology. Growth requires growth environments. The growth environments require, if we're going to set up growth environments, 
What do they require? They require a large investment up front in understanding that in person, not as an autism, but as an individual, as a biopsychosocial entity. What do I mean by that? As biologically someone who has their own set of limitations and resources, some of which can be expanded, some of which can grow, some of which can develop, some of which are pretty fixed. Psychosocial, psychologically, someone who has their own psychological history, when we start with them, sense of beliefs and expectations when we begin, right? Some of which are productive, some of which are not productive. <laughs> has their own set of mental tools or not, right? That we have to understand before we understand how to improve those. Socially is in a certain social milieu, has a certain social history, has a certain, um, uh, right? Social cultural world that they live in, that they inhabit, that provides resources also has limitations as well. So here's the deal. To be able to provide growth opportunities so that people can learn to adapt and grow throughout life, we have to provide growth environments. And these are long-term growth environments, right? We don't do that for people with autism. We don't provide growth environments. We provide certain discrete skill environments. <laughs> we provide quote unquote support, whatever that means. But what we don't, but, but all of that is based on the fact that your identity is one as someone with autism. That's who you are. You're an autism. So we do autism treatments, autism interventions, autism support, autism groups. What's interesting is that when we deal with young children, we seem in our culture to provide lots of, of uh, money up front for hours and hours of um, teaching skills that they're already going to develop anyway. But we do that for several years. Then when that ends, we, we provide little short-term. The only thing you get funded is little short-term groups and skills for little discrete things along the way, right? Support or social skills or whatever, job skills, whatever. Um, but neither of those has anything to do with mental growth, right, or self-growth. And so there's no reason for people to expect that people with autism, high function, whatever, are going to even understand the concept of growth or perceive themselves as individuals who are able to maintain continuity while they grow, right? Are able to balance those two things throughout their lives. I've had, or I've had even experiences of that. So when they're faced with challenges, they don't have any history of that. They don't have the skills, they don't have the, the history, they don't have a sense of self of it. And so things feel pretty dead, feel helpless, feel like they can't change. Right. Now, what I say about RDI is we don't provide an autism treatment. That may sound very radical, but we don't do autism treatment. No. In fact, I think that's a very bad thing to do. What we do do is we understand autism, people who have that, and we understand that because of no fault of anyone, right, they are unable they, they they don't get the benefit of a guiding relationship what i call a mind guiding relationship right they, they lose that opportunity and the rest then is you know pretty predictable and that our job is to which is the growth in mental growth environment mental and self-growth environment so our job is for each one of those people to provide that the thing we do the same is we the goal is the same which is to provide those growth opportunities for everybody we see, if possible. But then we don't want to treat them as autisms. 
we have to then, and, and this is where the investment has to be up front, right? It can't be then we have a cookbook treatment for them because each person is then going to be unique. The key is then we expend the resources up front and ongoing, but especially up front, to, to try to understand what is this person as a unique biosocial, biopsychosocial entity. And oftentimes that will occur over time. We, we get a little glimpse of who they can be or what they need. or what, And as they develop, as they start to grow, we start to see more and more of them as unique entities, unique systems, involved in a unique system, right? And we can tailor what we're doing based on that, right? And continue to support the development, curate whatever development of this mind-guiding relationship in their, with their family. Thanks for joining us for this special edition of ASD, A New Perspective, the podcast show where we help you understand what is going on in the mind of your child. And we do encourage you that growth for your child is possible. I'm Kat Lee. See you next time.